Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. My name is Matthew Tilly, and I'm the pastor of McConnell Road Baptist, and we're glad that you've joined us for this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org. In the first 24 verses of chapter 6, God has called Gideon. That's what we talked about last Sunday night. God called Gideon. He has a, a major work that he needs him to do. God has put him into the service. He has asked him to, to get started for him, to get on, get on the stick. <clears throat> it's interesting that not until the very end of the encounter does Gideon even understand who he's talking to. He finally, it finally sinks in just prior to the text that we're going to pick up in verse 25. So right in uh, verse 24, uh, verse, uh, rather verse 22, 23. 24, uh, Gideon really understands who it is he's talking to. And just as he understands that, he really worships the Lord. And you would think at this point there might be this time of peace and just tranquility and just everything is happy and everything is beautiful, but God doesn't waste any time. He's not waiting around. He's ready to get to work, and he gets right to it with the first um, the first order of business in verse 25. Look at that with me if you don't mind. Judges 6, verse 25. And it says, It came to pass that the same night, and this is right after the angel of the Lord in the previous passage has been talking to him. He's, he's that same night that the Lord said unto him. So God's now given him an order. And again, I want you to see how quickly God is moving on this. He's ready to get him started. And he says, Take thy father's young bullocks, which is a bull or a, a, a cow, so this is a bull that he has in mind here. I want you to take one of the, one of the cows. It says, even the second bullock of seven years old. Understand that this would be a mature cow. He doesn't want one of the little calves. He wants, he's got a specific one in mind. He wants one of the kind of the strong ones, kind of the robust ones, one of them that are probably one of the prized ones in the flock, to be honest with you. It's probably one that his daddy had his eye on. He says, I want you to get that one. Here's what I want you to do with it. And throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. He says, I want you to go out of your daddy's cows, and I want you to get one of the bulls, I want you to get one of the best ones, I want you to get one of the strong ones, and I want you to use that bull to go pull down this altar that has been erected to Baal. Now, Baal is a false god. It was a god of fertility. It was a god, there was a lot of uh, sexual fornication, sexual immorality and fornication that was associated with this. Uh, the worst of the, the perversity of our society today that we could imagine, they not only were doing that, but they were actually attaching it to as part of their religion. So it was, it's as bad as anything you could imagine in our world today, and they were doing it under the guise of that's what good people do. Um, sounds a lot like something we hear from today. That's what normal good people do, those terrible things. But this was, it was in a particular place. It was on the land that Gideon's father, Joash, it was on the land that Gideon's father had. So it looked like, best as I can tell there, if you can imagine kind of a home place like you're used to, you know, granddaddy had some home place with all this land. It was on the home place that Gideon's family had. And it was kind of a community center. It's the place everybody would come to to worship Baal. So if you could imagine in our era today, if you had a big old spread of land, you know, 60, 80, 100 acres, something like that, and you put a church on the middle of it. That's kind of the idea. And everybody came to your church in your house or at your, at your property. 
So that was the idea there. And it was specifically, if you go down to verse 26, we'll read this again, but it says there that he wants, God, he wants Gideon to build an altar on top, of the, on top of this rock. So he says what, they're going to tear down this, this altar that's to Baal, and it's on top of this rock. And it's this idea that where that altar and that, that area that the, the worship center, if you want to call it that, was, was a stronghold. This was a place that was a particularly uh, a safe place. You could go and you could hide. This was a place that would, would be very, very safe from the enemy. You could see them coming if you needed to. So this was a very special place. And because it was special, the pagan, the pagan uh, worshipers decided that was a good place for them to put a uh, worship center. And so they said, that's where we want to put this altar to Baal. Now, he also makes reference in verse 25 to this grove that is by it. He wants to cut down this grove. Um, th th this idea of a grove, it's like a, a, a stand of trees. That's what kind of has in mind. But what would happen, and I, I won't get into a lot of the details of it, but I just want you to understand that there is a lot of immorality associated with this, this pagan worship, that you have Baal, who was essentially a male god, and you had this, um, this Asherah, which was more of a female god, and she was represented by these sacred trees. Usually it's one or two, three trees, but these sacred trees that were very special, and they worshiped the tree as much as they did the Baal god that they would sacrifice to this altar. So there were these two components here, and God says, I want you to take that bull and pull down the altar and go ahead and chop those trees down while you're at it. And he needed a bull. They didn't have tractors back then, you understand? So this was his version of a tractor using this bull uh, to take care of all that stuff. And the process of doing this, he says, not only do I want you to take it down, but I want you to see how he does this in verse 26. He says, on top of that area where, where you've taken all that down, I want you to build an altar, verse 26, unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock. In the ordered place, he says, now I want you to put it right there in that specific place where they were. You see what God's doing? He's saying, I want you to tear down that stuff, and in their place, I want you to put an altar to me. This is my worship center. He's declaring his dominance, his preeminence over all these false gods. He says, I want you to put it right there. And then he says, and I want you to take that second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. Now, now one, things I, one thing that's interesting about what's going on here is if you were just reading prior, let's see, where is he that does this? In verse 24, Gideon built an altar. Did you see that in verse 24? So Gideon's already built an altar, but notice what happened with that altar. He was building that altar right alongside of a Baal altar. You, do you see what the picture here? Here he is worshiping God, and he's next door right on the same property, basically in th stone's throw of a place where they would worship a false deity, and there was enshrined. I mean, this is not just a place where they just sort of accidentally, no, they had groves, they had trees specifically planted, they had, they had this altar specifically there, and here's, uh, here's Gideon, to his credit, he is honestly worshiping God, but he's doing so right alongside of this false god's altar. And what God says is, thank you, but no. I don't want that. I want you to get rid of Baal's altar and then put mine on top of that. I want you to, I want you to offer to me a burnt offering. Now, one of the things you need, need to know about a burnt offering 
You can go to Leviticus chapter 1 and see some of the descriptions of a burnt offering. But a burnt offering, the, the main marker of it is that it is completely consumed. Whatever you give to God, it's completely burnt up. It's completely given over. And here's the idea. Instead of me saying, like we do with our, with our paychecks, Lord, here's a little bit of my paycheck, you know? And I'm not, not faulting you. We've got to live on it. I understand that. But this is what we do. Here, here I got $100. Lord, I'm going to give you 10 of it. That's what, we, that's what we do, 10% tithe. So that's what we do. That's not what a burnt offering is. A burnt offering is, Lord, you gave me this $100. Here's the $100. That's what a burnt offering is. Give it all to the Lord. Uh, Brother, Brother Steve, I was thinking about you. We were talking about that, that, little, that woman's mites, those, those mites that were given. That's where she just gave all that she had. That's the, that's the equivalent here. And what the Lord is saying is, I want you to give me a burnt offering. I want you to give it to me fully alone. I don't want to share this with anybody. I don't want to share it with nobody. It's mine and mine alone. He says, I want you to take the bull that tore down the altar. I want you to offer him. I want you to take the altar that was where the stronghold was, and I want you to build it on top of that stronghold. And he says, I want you to have the fuel that fires this burnt offering to be the fires of that God's trees to start with. I want all of it to show that this is mine. And God, what God is doing is he's demanding total and pure worship from Gideon. I do believe that he wants that from you and me, too. I don't think this is just for Gideon. I think this is what God expects, demands of us. You see, God is going to be worshipped. He will be served correctly. In this particular setting, I think we can get a little bit focused in on the fact that Israel is in bondage to Midian. And that's, that's the context. That is absolutely the context. But I think we've got to get to the place where we understand that their bondage to Midian was the least of their problems. That was the least of the problems. In fact, that oppression that they were experiencing was, in fact, God even says, I sent this to you to shake you up, to wake you up, because there's a bigger problem going on. The sin bondage that Gideon's own family, and of course, this was just this was an example of what was going on all over the country, Gideon's bondage to sin was actually worse than the Midianite oppression that they were enduring. I believe that that's absolutely, as we can apply this text to ourselves, I think that's exactly where the church of Jesus Christ is in 2020. And I'm just, I'm talking to McConnell Road. I ain't talking to nobody else. I'm talking to y'all. I think that's the, where we are right now. We can, and rightly so, we could explain how things are terrible, how the government ain't acting right, and the governor ain't doing right, and we can talk about how sin is running rampant, nobody believes the way they ought to believe, nobody comes to church anymore, and we could fuss and feud and holler about how Christians are oppressed, and all these things, and I'm not faulting you, you're right, but there's a bigger problem. The bigger problem is we need to address the sin in our personal lives. You may say, well, Matthew, I ain't got no sin. Well, good for you. I got some, and I'm trying to work on it. I'm just being honest with you. I'm absolutely, as I put this together, the Lord has spoken to me about some things that I need to address in my own life, saying you need to get that stuff right. If you ain't going to get that right, you're never going to be doing anything for me. I'm just telling you, you're going to have to get to this point where you need to understand that your sin has to be addressed I'm not saying you address the sin, everything's going to be perfect and hunky-dory. Not at all. But I am saying it ain't going to get better until you start addressing things. You're going to have to address that first. It might be a secret sin, something nobody knows about. 
And can I go ahead and tell you, it might be something nobody needs to know about. I ain't trying to get you to confess your sins tonight. I'm just saying it might be something nobody knows about. And that doesn't mean because nobody knows about it, it's not a problem. In fact, those are probably the most egregious sins. Because no one knows about it, you can feel justified and like, I'm a good person. No, no, no. We have to d- deal with those secret sins because you know where, where the devil likes to put that kind of sin? He likes to put it in a stronghold in our heart, in that spot where we think nobody can see it, nobody can deal with it, and nobody can address it, and nobody can judge me because nobody knows about it. It's in a stronghold. But I'm going to tell you, just like this worship of Baal was a perversion of God's plan. I don't know the nature of the sin that you need to deal with, but I can tell you, no matter how good or bad you think it is, it is absolutely a perversion of God's plan. That's why God wants you to deal with it. He's got something better for you. You are not to be in bondage to this sin, yet we're sitting around saying, look at all the bad things going on around me. And the Lord's saying, hang on a minute. Judgment begins at my house. Judgment starts here. And I think we need to understand that there will not be freedom, there will not be liberty, there will not be joys of the Lord experienced by God's people until and unless they say, Lord, I've got a stronghold that I'm willing to take my own idols and tear it down with. Because what the Lord will do is he says, if you're one of mine, he'll break you down. He'll break you down. You're not going to have victory in Jesus until you obey the Lord. And if you're not one of Jesus's, if you're not one of his, he's going to judge you for this. This is what we try to preach every service, that the Lord wants to save you and he will take your sins from you. And if you are one of his and you keep on hanging on to your sin, he's going to shake it loose from you one way or the other. Like a good daddy should to a, to a disrespectful, rebellious little child, he will shake it loose one way or the other so you don't get hurt by it more than you already are. But if you're not one of his, you know what he's going to do? He says, listen, you just give that to me, and I'll take care of it. He has on the cross. He's paid for it. But we have to understand he will judge our sins, either in himself or in us, if we won't give it over to him. Go to verse 27 now. Gideon obeys rather quickly on this. It says that Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. We'll put a period right there where the Bible puts, I think it's a colon or a semicolon. Uh, that's a colon right there. We're going to put a period just for the sake of our discussion right now. It's interesting that Gideon obeys right away. It's interesting as well, as much as he's kind of bad mouth, poor mouth in the verse, first 24 verses about how he's not much of nothing and the Lord's forsaken him and everything else, he's got 10 fellows that he can call on to help him out, his own servants. Apparently, they ain't doing so bad. I, I imagine it seems to be that Gideon's family is probably one of the prominent families in his community. They've got the, where the worship center, the, the Baal worship center is there. They've got that there. He's got, enough to, he's got enough to grab 10 men, and you'll see here in a minute, he's only letting 10 people in on this. There's apparently a whole a bunch of other people that he could have let in on this, but he just gets 10 people. So they've got a little something going on there. But he says, it says there he's getting right on it. Now we know that the Lord has been talking to him that same night, verse 25, so he says, the Lord talks to him, and then immediately he goes and gets ten fellows, and then they get on this, this mission of tearing down the altar. But now, where I put that period, and the, and the Lord has put a colon, that tells me that there's a little more to the story. Why is he getting so eager? Not because he's such an obedient child of God, but look what he says there. It says, 
And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city. And he could not do it by day that he did it by night. He obeyed the Lord quickly, but his motives were all kind of messed up. (laughs) I don't know if y'all have ever done that or not, but sometimes I'll do the right thing, but it's for the wrong reason altogether. I've done that before. It's what Gideon's doing. He knew that when he did this, it was going to upset some people in the town. He ultimately feared man more than he feared God. I will say this much in Gideon's defense. He at least did it. There are some of us, when we, were given a, when we are given a command by God to do something we know is going to upset some people, we don't just do it in a way that's going to upset them the least. We just don't do it at all because we don't want to upset anybody or get, get on the bad end of some, somebody's opinion. But at least he did do it. But he's, up, he's concerned that people are going to be upset, and he does figure correctly. Look with me in verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of, the Lord, uh, altar of Baal excuse me, was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. They said, wow, <laughs> somebody's been working through the night. Where'd our altar go? Where'd our grove go? Where did it all go? And they even go in verse 29, they say one to another, who hath done this thing? It's funny. Um, remember Gideon gets 10 fellows to help him with this. And I don't know if you've ever tried to keep a secret or not. But if you try to keep a secret and you tell 10 people, it's not going to be a secret very long. You might get away with it with one or two people, but 10 people, forget about it. It's going to come, it's going to come clean. I will also add to it, it doesn't help that this was done on his own property. So he was probably the easiest one to access it. He had been up threshing wheat the night before, you'll remember that, and people probably knew about it in the town. So they had to figure pretty quickly who it was. And of course they do say, and when they ask, it said, this is the last part of verse 29, and when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. So they figured it out pretty quickly. So they figured it out. But what's amazing to me at least, this is one thing you've got to say about Gideon on this. When he did what he did, they knew it, and I want you to pay attention to how they described what he did. This is a second-hand witness of what Gideon did. Verse 30, then the men of the city said unto Joash, bring out thy son that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. Do y'all remember what the Lord asked him to do? Take down the altar, Cut down the grove. He was guilty of exactly what God asked him to do. (laughs) You've probably heard it said before, if there was a trial and they were trying to convict you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you or not? And I would have to say sometimes I wonder about us. I wonder about myself. Would there truly you can say what you want to about Gideon, and there's a lot to say. He's not, he's not 100% what he ought to be. We'll, we'll know that. We'll learn more about him, and he becomes less of what you think he ought to be. But I will say this. You can convict him in a court of his peers of doing exactly what God told him to do. And may we all have that testimony, that if God tells us to do something, and we've been told 66 books of commands, things that we know we ought to do, we can, we can quibble over the gray areas. There's enough clear stuff in here. If we'll just do the stuff the Bible may, that we all agree on, we change this world. May we be the kind of people who can be convicted of doing exactly what God wanted them to do. 
Now, we'll say, though, when you do what God wants you to do, what they wanted to do to Gideon will, 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 will come out. Look back at verse 30. They say, bring him out. Bring out thy son, talking to Joash, his daddy, that he may die. They want to kill him. You see, obedience to the Lord is never popular. Nobody wants you to obey the Lord. They don't mind you being a good person. They don't mind. Your neighbors will not mind. In fact, they'll even like it if you're a good person. The people in your community do not mind you even coming to church. They don't even mind you coming to a fundamental church. They don't mind you being a nice person. They don't mind. They don't even mind. Can I go ahead and tell you this? They don't even mind you witnessing about the gospel of Jesus. They don't mind that one bit. Most people in this area are not going to bother. That, that's going to be fine. Where it's going to get upset with you, they hate people. And I mean down to a person, even some of the folks that you know, they hate it when people do what God told them to do. When they actually obey, and you say, well, I don't know about that. I dare, dare say you hadn't tried it. <laughs> you go try to do what God clearly tells us in his word to do. You're going to make some enemies. They might be enemies in your own house, maybe on your own street, maybe the next row over. They may be in the, in your, in the place that you work, but you're going to make some enemies if you do what God tells you to do. In fact, Jesus says it this way, the world, if the world hate you, this is in John 15, verse 18 and 19, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's why I'm saying to you that the world, the devil, he's fine with you coming to church. As long as you don't do what you hear, he's fine with you reading your Bible. As long as you don't obey what it says, he's fine with you being a nice person. As long as what you're doing makes everybody around you feel good, but the minute that you actually look at what the Scripture says, hear God's voice, and obey it, you're going to get some pushback. You're absolutely going to get pushback. Now, now let's be clear. Some of us are getting pushback because we're jerks. So let's be careful about that. It's not what we're saying here. I am saying to do what God says. And God does say to be loving, to be kind, to be generous, to be all those things. But to do this in a way that is in accordance with God's word, you're going to run into resistance. When God tells us to do something, it's going to always insist that he is above all, and it's going to necessarily tear down the idols that you and I have. This is why people hate it, because we all have idols. This is why they hate it. Because we all have idols, and what God's going to tell us to do is going to destroy the idols that we all have. And it's going to put his worship in its place. So God's not only going to, um, he's not only going to get proper worship, he's also going to upset some people along the way. But he also, and, and the third point here is that he changes hearts. God changes hearts. I want you to see this with Joash. Now, think about the circumstances that we're in right now. You're Joash for just a minute, okay? I want you all to get your mind in Joash's head for just a minute. Well, you've got this nice piece of property. It's been in your family for a generation or two. You have built, we all know it was not good worship, but it was, it was what the community liked, a nice place for everybody to come and worship Baal. On your property, I'm sure it was nice. 
You've got this whole herd, herd of cattle out here you're proud of, you've been taking care of them. You wake up one morning, and your son is taking your best cow and burn it up on top of an altar that he built after he destroyed the worship center that you and the community have worked so hard to build. And on top of that, it's embarrassing because it's your boy that did it, and the whole town is at your front door saying, why did this happen? Who did this? We want to kill him. We're ready to do this. I mean, I'm embarrassed, aren't you? I would be a little bit. Man, Gideon, why'd you have to do that, son? We have a name in this community. What are you talking about? Why are you doing this? That'd be my response. I'm, I'm a sinner. I understand that. But that'd be my response. They're out for blood. But look at what Joash's response is in verse 30, uh, excuse me, verse 31. And Joash said unto all the men that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? Speaking of Baal. He that will plead for him, he will plead for Baal, he that's going to argue on Baal's behalf, let him be put to death while it is yet morning. If Baal, he, be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Joash, I think, is a bit of a changed man here. I don't know the whole trajectory of this man's life. But if he thought enough to allow an altar for Baal to be built on his land, this is a change of attitude right here. Because what's happening is he's actually calling these men and said, listen, you pick a side, boys. You're either going to argue for Baal and support this God who's supposed to be an all-powerful deity and you're going to have to build his altar back up that he allowed to be tore down, or you're going to let God be God and you're going to follow him. See, Baal is supposed to be this strong deity, but in this scene we see that Baal is an impotent deity. He has no power whatsoever. The children of Israel, they needed somebody to save them. But what are they going to have to do in this case to Baal? They're going to have to save Baal. And Joash recognizes that, and he calls them out and says, Listen, boys, something ain't right about this. He says, Plus, when you're speaking on behalf of Baal... You are actually putting yourself in danger of judgment from God. He, he says there that, he says, if you, he that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it is yet morning. This is not Joash just speaking from the hip saying, if y'all are going to be on Baal's side, I'm going to kill you. That's not what he's doing. He, he is saying you're going to die, but he's doing this with the authority of God's word. I do want to ask you, hold your place in Judges and go back a few pages over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 13. I want to show you this in Deuteronomy 13. So this was, you've got to understand the timeline a little bit of what's going on here. The children of Israel, by the point of Judges, they have not been in the land that long. Maybe, I think it, by this point, you might be talking about a couple, three generations. So we're not talking about more than a couple hundred years at most. But the point is, they're not, they're not in the land very long at all. And just before they get into the land, they are given the book of Deuteronomy or the information that we see as the book of Deuteronomy. And this is God's word to them while they're in the wilderness. So this is not that far away from them, I am sure, because at this time it would have been oral tradition. They would have been passed down from generation to generation. They would have memorized these speeches that were given from God and given to the children of Israel. If you're in Deuteronomy chapter 13, look with me in verse, verse 4. This is, if you go back to, um, I believe this is 
uh, yes, this is Moses talking, Moses talking on behalf of the Lord, of course. But in verse 4 it says, Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. Essentially saying to the children of Israel, listen y'all, you better, you better follow God exclusively, nobody else. We know this from the Ten Commandments, no other gods before him. That's what he says. But now skip down, if you wouldn't mind, down to verse 6. He says, now you already established that we need to, to obey God exclusively. Now verse 6, he says, if thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is, thy, which is as thine own soul, I mean, he's pretty much covering all the bases here. If anybody, entice thee secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely, of the gods of the people which are round about you. By the way, that's Baal. Baal was the, he was the, the popular god of Canaan. He was the main number one god of Canaan. That was not one that they brought from Egypt with them. That was one they were introduced to when they came into the land. He says, to those people, when they do that, I'm going down to verse, verse 8, thou shalt not consent unto him. Don't do what he tells you, nor hearken unto him. Don't listen to him. Neither shall thine eye pity him. Don't even, don't even think twice about this man. Neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. In fact, go ahead and let people know what kind of a, what kind of a lousy person this is that's trying to get you to follow after another God. Verse 9, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thy hand, thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Go back to Judges, because all Joash is doing He's calling on the word of the Lord. He's been reminded of what God has already said to these people. If you want to fight for Baal, you want to be on Baal's side, go ahead. We're going to go ahead and do some Old Testament justice on you right here. And we're going to do exactly what God told us to do. We're going to kill you on the spot. There's no other way that that could happen, that kind of transformation. I don't believe there's any way that could happen except God himself reached down and changed the heart of Joash while they were standing there talking reminding him of what he probably learned when he was a little boy about what God said about following after other gods. This is probably the start of Joash's return to, to God. He's not all the way there, of course. Verse 31, we see that he gives his son a new name, Jerubabel, which is essentially that, that last part. You can actually see the word Baal in it. The name that Gideon is given is Baal, but it's Jerub, Jerubbaal, and it's that the word is contends. It says that Baal contends. That's, how it, that's essentially the, the essence of it. It's intended to be a message about um, uh, Gideon prevailing against Baal because he tore down the altar. But if you really read the words of it, it sounds like it's almost a praise to, uh, to Baal, how good Baal is. That's how it, and, and I think the reason this comes across is because Joash, have y'all ever met somebody that has been, maybe they're in, well into their adult life and they, they just kind of lived a raucous life and hadn't been around church folks very much, and they're trying to do the right thing, but sometimes they kind of do it a little clumsy. Do you know what I'm talking about? They kind of, sometimes they'll say something, you're like, man, I wouldn't have said it like that. Because they're trying, but they don't know all the right language. And I think that's exactly what we see with Joash here, that he's trying to do the right things, but he, he's willing, but I don't know if he's all the way there. A man who was previously offering sacrifices to a demon, however, has now acknowledged the law of God. This is God changing hearts. Now, I want you to see this. And this, is my, this is the last thing I want to tell you. This is, the, this is probably the most important thing I've got to get across to you. 
that God is faithful to do these things, to get right worship, to upset the sinners, the people who oppose him, to change the heart of idolaters. He's faithful to do this in spite of the fact that there is idolatry, unfaithfulness, and fearfulness throughout the land of Israel. It starts, it's all over the land of Israel. We've narrowed in on the tribe of Manasseh. We've looked at the specific clan of the Abbey Ezraites. And we've looked at this specific family of Joash. And we've looked at this one man, pinpointed, named Gideon. And all the way, top to bottom, they're rotten. They're following after the wrong gods. They're rotten. But God continues to be faithful. He doesn't give up. He continues to be faithful. This, you've got to see this. And I want you to understand that in the same exact way for you and me, that God is faithful. In spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of our hearts that have idolatry in them, I stand before you as much as I believe Jesus is my God and my Savior. I stand behind everything I preached this morning about Jesus. He is the most important person in the universe to me. But as much as I say that, I can, I'm unfortunately just like Gideon from time to time where I am offering sacrifice of praise to the one true God and I got this idol over here that I'm, I'm easily swayed into worshiping and following after. You say, well, Matthew, you've got little Buddhas in your house. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that I hold on to strongholds of sin. You understand what I mean? And I think we all do this. And, and like I said, if, God bless you if you ain't one of those people. But if you're one of those people that are there, I want you to know that even though you have heart of idolatry, even though you have natural fearfulness, I can tell you, I can identify with Gideon. I'm afraid a lot. Man, what is somebody going to say? If I do this, am I going to look stupid? I always worry about stuff like that. And what I think the Lord is saying is even though you're afraid, even though you're, you, you have idols, even though you're unfaithful, he will remain faithful. God does not alter his course. And because he is faithful, the onus is on us to tear down some of those strongholds in our hearts so that there's nothing between you and the Savior. There's a song, you know, I don't know if y'all ever sing it much, but nothing between me and the Savior. Nothing between. I'm afraid there's a lot between us and the Lord right now. And I think we need to get to that place where we're tearing down those strongholds so that we have nothing between us and the Savior. We need to get to the place where we're fearing God himself more than any man in this world. Who's faithful to you? It's not people. People are going to let you down. People have let you down. You know this. Y'all can give me the stories. You've got scars to prove it, that people disappoint you. Maybe even people in this room as we speak. Maybe even this preacher has disappointed you. But I can tell you that I may disappoint you, but God will never. He is always faithful. So we've got to quit worrying about what other people think. We need to worry more about what God thinks. He's the one that loves you. He's the one that has his eternal soul in your hands. We need to be marked more by the obedience to God than our defense of our idols. We need to be marked by that. I think too many of us are too concerned about what we're going to lose and what, we're going to, what God's going to take away from us. I can tell you in my own, as my own preparation for this, I'm just confessing to y'all as I'm speaking, as I'm preparing for this, one of the things I'm thinking is, Lord, if I, if I, if I give that up, what, what's going to happen to me? If I don't, if I don't pursue that, if I don't, if I don't work on that, what, what are you going to, what's going to happen to me? And, and what we've got to understand is we don't need to be defending our idols. They can't help you. They're, they're, they're impotent to be strong to help you at all. They can't do anything for you anyway. What are the things 
that can do something for you. It's the Lord God Almighty. Obey Him. And we have to stop building our altars to our idols right alongside of God. We'll come into the church service and we'll worship Jesus and we'll love Him and we'll praise Him, all the while knowing full well we got something between us and the Savior. I want to encourage you tonight to respond to the preaching of God's Word with obedience and repentance. Thank you for joining us for Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Pastor Matthew Tilley, and I'm so glad you joined us here. But if you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org.